0: For me, this is the beginning of the American adventure.
1: (laughs) And our destiny. Tomorrow's horizons are here today. (laughs) We
0: really can bring our dreams to life. It takes a lot of work, but the truth is, if we can dream it, we can
1: do it. Radio.
0: Please put loose items in the pouch in front of
1: you, and securely buckle seatbelts. Attention Horizons passengers, our travels will be briefly delayed. Please remain seated.
2: And this is my assistant and good ride arm, Figment. <laughs> W-W Radio, your information station. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the W.W. Radio Show your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 665.2. 665 and a half. Literally, for years, I have been dreading this episode number. I'm not going to call it episode 666. So it's 665 and a half, and together, this and every week, we're going to celebrate the magic of the Disney parks, movies, and more here on the podcast, my weekly live video on Facebook every Wednesday night, community, audio tours, blog, and more. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and find everything else at www.radio.com. So this week, former Walt Disney Imagineer Tom K. Morris joins me again for part two of our conversation. I'll then have our Disney trivia question of the week, more updates, and your voicemails at the end of the show. So sit back, relax, relax. And enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. And I think one of the the most continuously intriguing things about the pavilion was exactly what we were talking about was the Image Works upstairs was I think the first and maybe even still to this day the best example of the words that are that are. Used all the time now, but interaction, emerging, yeah. and personalization yeah. for the guests, which right. was clearly almost ahead of its time because people didn't know what to do, but right. is where we even now are going with the theme park experience. Um, right. The technology might be different, but I think it was so advanced for its time, giving people that type of post-show experience that was not necessarily a, a, a retail Establishment,
0: And it ended up being a very good um, learning experience and kind of lab for all the future interactives. Joe Garlington, who I believe is a genius and, and is the best person still on this planet, um, who conceives these interactive um, activities. He did not do most of those or any of the ones in the image works. Uh, he may have worked on Magic Palette, but he has a very keen knowledge of what guests what guest behavior is with respect to interactives, and when something is too challenging or, you know, not intuitive, and what people's patience level um, or toleration of certain things. And so he, I think, learned. You know, he also examined all of those interactives and asked himself and his team how could we make those better you know going forward which they would need to do for wonders of life and for um you know other pavilions and other exhibits in communicore oh, so and then communicore
2: had it had more of a of a learning education serious yeah. tone to it than than the fun that the imagination pavilion had
0: right right and some of the things in the communicore suffered from the Um, intuition problem and some didn't some were amazingly you know easy to figure out and so um, you know there were naysayers I believe as I recall initially about interactivity that people will abuse and vandalize and not understand get frustrated and break and so there was a, a camp that was like you know waiting to go aha I told you so and another camp that was like no this is the you know one of the avenues that we need to explore going ahead in the future and um and so it was all figured out you know eventually uh so you know imagineering now has a very good team that uh, was was led for a long time by joe garlington he's retired now um but they i think his knowledge about um you know about guest guest behavior, vis-a-vis interactives um has been that tribal knowledge has been handed down now. Mm-hmm.
2: I, Tom, I could literally like there's so much that I want. <laughs> I mean, we could stay on the imaginary the imagination pavilion all day. Um, and maybe someday we'll come back and, and revisit it as it goes
0: through we should after I go through after I jog my memory and go through those files, which have been sitting in a in a file cabinet in my garage for years and i have not you know i i just tell myself if i go there then i'm going to be there for days
2: that other sound you hear is people screaming of offering to volunteer to help to say
0: <laughs> they can stuff. you know <laughs> a qualified archivist is absolutely invited to come over and and uh, document it and go through it and index it and do all the things a qualified ar- uh, archivist would do
2: yeah i you laugh. I'm sure. I'm sure we'll get an email at some point. um I, God, I don't. I don't want to gloss over any part of your career. But if I have my timeline correct, again, Tony Baxter clearly loves Tom Morris and what he does. He invites you to head up Fantasyland over in Euro Disneyland, Disneyland Paris. And, yeah, several years
0: later. Yeah, yeah.
2: Led the team um, for. I'm not going to try and give the French pronunciation for Sleeping Beauty Castle there as well. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, uh, Chateau de la Belle au Bois Dormant. That one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much Tony Baxter loved Tom Morris. He was very argue. Like, I was very argue uh, argumentative <laughs> and challenging, but maybe he liked that. Um, and you know, eventually. We would always come to an agreement, and um, no, I think you know, I think I was pretty good, but there were times when I was obnoxious. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, and in between Paris and imagination, there was Splash Mountain, which I guess we talked about, and then also several assignments down at Disneyland, um, working locally at the office there.
2: Oh, you did at the Mickey Star Traders, right? You worked the Mickey Star Traders.
0: I did. I did the neon Mickeys and also the facade for star tours and that graphic. Here's another one where, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to whine a little bit and pout, which is that beautiful star Wars marquee, which, you know, I spent a few days working on the, you know, designing it, coming up with what would look good, what would be eye catching and, um, and unique. And, but it was a geometric nightmare. And, uh, I must have made seven or eight of them until I finally came up with that one. And then I never thought about it for years later, you know, years and years. And then one day I'm in line in the cafeteria uh, because the line was going out the door for some reason. And there's a case, a showcase next to it. And it's got an award that was given by the graphic association of America or something, um, whatever the Academy awards for graphics it's called and it was for that marquee and it was given to the graphic team, which, you know, they certainly deserve credit for that, but I was not mentioned or part of that. (laughs) So he who has the last thumbprint on something, I guess is the one who gets the prize (laughs) and that, you know, it's an occupational hazard and I I let it just kind of roll off my back most of the time, but uh, sometimes there's one that gets my craw. That's one.
2: <laughs> well, and you do have your handprints on so many, excuse me, individual attractions, both domestically and overseas. The audio for Space Mountain, Rock and Roller Coaster, Disney Quest, Radiator Springs Racers. Um, I mentioned overseas. You were executive producer over in, uh, you were a show producer over in Hong Kong Disneyland, correct?
0: I was the the my title then was executive producer and I was um in, in charge of the creative development for the Magic Kingdom park there and um and Tim DeLaney was also an executive producer who had Tomorrowland and he did a fantastic job with it uh in fact I think you know in many ways that might be the best Tomorrowland you know that's been done uh, since Tomorrowland '67, it does seem like sort of the best day. of right. They sort of took the best yeah. of,
2: of different parks and, and put it into Hong
0: Kong. Well, it has a little bit more continuity. Mm-hmm. The one in Hong Kong I'm talking about, um, the one in Paris is more of a collection of visions of the future over time, and the one in Hong Kong is a, more of a fantasy. But it's based on space travel, so everything is aerodynamic. Everything looks like it could have flown in or could fly away. Um, so there was a consistent or a continuity, I guess. I mean, there you know there were diverse structures, but it had a visual continuity to it. And at night became spectacular with all of the neon. Um, and then I had basically the rest of the park. And um, it was also a challenging project, you know, because of the, this was during the era where we're not doing any more theme parks, except we're gonna do just this one. <laughs> And, uh, so that a lot
2: into a tiny space.
0: Yeah. Which we did. And, and everything in it was beautiful. You know, everyone did an incredible job. There was no thing that I had to like wince (laughs) and go, Oh, that thing, you know, uh, it all came out beautiful. It's just, you know, we all would have liked to have had more and it was a frustrating, it was frustrating because we all knew it had to be bigger (laughs) and had to have more in it but that wasn't the thinking, you know, from on high. I mean, even from a higher level than imaginary. It wasn't Imagineering who said, gee, let's make a small park. Same with the Paris second gate, you know, we didn't raise our hands and say, gee, we'd like to, you know, <laughs> do a half day park um, unless you charge half price, then, it, then it's okay. But uh, those, were the cha- those were the challenging days. <laughs>
2: Well, and I think it's and part of the reason why, and I didn't. Again, we can spend an individual show talking about each of these places, but part of the reason why I wanted to make sure I mentioned Space Mountain, Rock and Roller Coaster, Quest, Cars Land, uh, Disneyland Paris, and Hong Kong is your career and your your. I'm using air air quotes for area of expertise spans such a wide spectrum. You aren't just the guy who does you're known for this thing you have touched on everything from the whimsical and elegance of the Sleeping Beauty Castle whose French name I still cannot pronounce to you know some of the other projects that we worked on and I think it's just a fascinating 30,000 foot view of your career as a whole that no matter where you were placed and I think that was that that what Tony Baxter and others probably saw in you was that we can put him anywhere and he will adapt and be able to bring his expertise to whatever project he's working on.
0: Yeah. And the most fun for me was the, the few times I got to play in the special effects sandbox and, um, and and, you know, it's kind of interesting because like, I think this was down at Disneyland. I was always interested in special effects, right? I mean, if you're a Disney nerd and you're interested in working at Imagineering, you're naturally interested in special effects. And so I would spend a lot of time in the special effects department, just loitering, you know, and hanging out with the guys and talking to them and just having fun, watching them having fun. Being Um, a sponge,
2: I I assume, being a sponge. yeah,
0: Yeah, yeah. And I had an opportunity. I may have done some things on... You know, I worked very closely on imagination with each of the special effects people, but particularly in the uh, rotating turntable. I think Jim Mulder was probably the effects guy working on that with all the different projectors and the timing, because those projectors and all of those effects were stationary in the center of the turntable, which didn't move. It's like a lifesaver, you know, Uh, and in the center, it was it, it didn't rotate. Um, And that's where all the projectors were that were projecting the background against the uh, um, rear projection screen in each one of those scenes on the turntable. And so I would work with him, you know, at night. And actually I did some of the art for that. Um, The clouds, which were taught to me by Walt Paraguay how to to, um, stylistically design clouds. And I'll never forget that little tutorial and so I ended up doing most of the clouds in the entire pavilion because I had been taught by the master. <laughs> uh, um, so I, I worked, you know, gosh, there were other, I know there were other places in the uh, pavilion where I was working close, very closely with the um, effects people. But then I, I got to actually design some effects. One of them was the re-entry tunnel in Space Mountain, which never worked; it was not timed right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny what was controlling it back then was a drum that rotated with uh, electric eyes on it. Um, that it was essentially uh, like a music box um, turning you know with all the little prongs on it, but it was done with a piece of acetate that had black um, squares on it that would in, that would trigger the, the electric light to turn on a uh, fluorescent light that was in that re-entry tunnel which came on too late and didn't give you the sense of spinning that it was supposed to do actually it originally mechanically rotated and they shut that off shortly after the ride opened so now it was just kind of a dumb effect so i was going to try to save it this is now in the you know 84 probably 1984 so the attraction's been open for seven years with this and that was a, um, that
2: was a George McGinnis effect, right? Wasn't didn't George? It McGinnis was
0: it was a George McGinnis effect, but the mechanically, I don't know why they had to shut it off, but there was some reason that it kept breaking or something, and so th- what we had to do, rather than rely on the mechanical cage to rotate, we had to make the lights rotate, you know, in sequence, and so that was my job was to program that, and it was programmed via this a piece of acetate that would wrap around a drum with these lights. And um, again, it ended up being kind of a simple thing, a very though, you know, like you had to really pay attention to what you were doing and concentrate. And I probably came up with, in fact, I think I did come up with three different programs for it. Um, So I guess the drum was big enough to handle the three programs. And so it it helped, you know, it wasn't as good as what's there now, that's for sure. What's there now is spectacular, a spectacular ending to that attraction. But this was the best we could do with what was already there. And so I did that. I I recall doing similar things, you know, to that, um, you know, working with with, um, kind of music box technology, if you will, rotating drums and doing programming that way. And, um, I know, I think there were a few other times where I got to kind of play in the playground in the sandbox there.
2: And I think that's like, one of the, the things, not just about your career, but imagineering as a whole. And so often if somebody says, oh, I want to be an imagineer, they, they, they often mistakenly think, well, if I'm an imagineer, it means I do this. And and they don't realize that there's 150 or so different disciplines, obviously, which you tried to, you dip your toe in as much did. as you could during your, your. Oh, graphics,
0: graphics, and color design, and you know sometimes the help was appreciated, and sometimes it wasn't. So you know I would kind of infiltrate these little pockets because I wanted to. That's the only reason I guess, or I felt I could do it. You know I started doing uh, providing background music for I did a for Fantasyland in um, Paris. I selected every track. Of, of the of background music that you hear in the areas and in the restaurants, and then did the same for the studio in Paris. Wow! The second gate. Um,
2: Again, music not being necessarily your primary. Oh, title of job description.
0: No. Um, I think the only discipline I never I never obnoxiously infiltrated was landscape, <laughs> um, but I would always be very close with the landscape people. And I loved it, you know, and I loved going around with Bill Evans. I mean, Bill Evans, he didn't have to ask. He'd grab you by the collar and you'd, he'd walk you around and just start talking about, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? You should rethink this. And that was, you know, he was uh, one of the greatest mentors at Imagineering. He was so hands-on and so assertive about um, being a, a uh, mentor, and um you didn't have to ask and i was i was afraid to ask others sometimes cuz it's like you know am i too fanboy i don't want to be fanboy you know um but and i don't want to bother you know these people in their many cases they're already retired but they're still showing up and um so i didn't take advantage of it the way probably i should have uh, but Bill was fantastic, and I, you know, I didn't need to really get into the landscape, you know, arena because everyone was doing such a great job. Not that the other people weren't doing a great job, but it's just like there's, you know, I don't have an opportunity to come in and and do something. You know, sometimes I'd suggest a plant, but
2: right. there's only uh, so much time for you to yeah to learn, yeah. And do and work and 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 whatnot, uh, and. Right. and Again, in 40-plus in years at Imagineering, obviously there's no, you, you can't ask the unfair, what is your favorite this, but do you have, when you look back on your career, do you have one and or the other a, a fondest memory or even maybe an accomplishment that you personally are most proud of?
0: Well, the castle I'm personally most proud of, and I think that is... Um, you know, probably my greatest accomplishment.
2: That means you have to come back and we have to talk solely about the castle then. just
0: I, I can do that. And of course, it was like everything, a collaboration. Um, but on the exterior, the look of the castle as you see it, as you walk around, was something that I micromanaged. Um, whereas the ins- the interior, less so. know um all the interior there was i think two or three interior designers who all did a fantastic job and skip laying everything that he touched you know it was particularly the dragon's lair um it was golden you know um so you know there, there wasn't really a need for me to to get that involved on the inside of it uh i would approve things but i wasn't designing anything maybe a little bit here and there but the exterior is really where i kind of became bullheaded um but uh, you know i think that is the, the that whole paris experience is the greatest experience it was frustrating it was wonderful it was eye-opening you know educational freezing cold <laughs> in january you know the cold wet drizzly wind out there on the site was horrific um but you know, you'd always go inside to a warm fireplace and you know lunch and all of that was great, you know, and it was a fantastic team. Uh so it's hard to it is hard, you know, to say really. I think I, I guess it's turning out that the second greatest accomplishment were the neon Mickeys <laughs> on Star Traders. <laughs> A thing that had not been inside of my head as a memory for years until, you know, I kind of settled back in the United States after all the travel, all the international travel. And I think it was after the Tomorrowland redo in 98, sometime after that, probably after the year 2000, I walked, I was walking through Disneyland, kind of a, you know, get reacquainted with Disneyland. And I thought, there's no way those neon Mickeys are still there. And they were, <laughs> I was happy to see they were still there. I had forgotten about them. And uh, so that was kind of nice, but now I guess they've got like a whole fan club of their own. People have, you know, tattoos. Of it.
2: <laughs> I, and you know, 20, as we were talking, I, 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 wonder if you ever think you, right, there's a fan club for something that, that you have made. Do you think about your legacy at all? And what, what the legacy it is that you hope to leave behind as, as history and fans, Look back on your work and your time at Imagineering.
0: Well, I'm very focused on for the at the moment my legacy being not the the um, creative uh, things that I you know worked on as, as much as how do I impart the knowledge that I learned. And by the way, I made a lot of mistakes, you know, and there were a lot of things I would totally do differently and a lot of behaviors I would uh you know do differently um so that's what I'm hoping to leave you know future imagineers with is is what I learned about the imagineers before me and how they worked and then what how, what I learned while I was there by those imagineers and how I could have you know how I um you know, basically my experience, good and bad, and how people can learn from that. That's what I hope, because after this book that I'm doing now, or books, book series, I don't know what it's going to be still. Um, then what I hope to do is kind of you know, the um, imaginary version of the art of animation or um, the illusion of life, More, more the illusion of life, where it is a serious look at um, tricks of the trade, as well as you know what what are the pitfalls, you know, what are the traps? what are the um, you know what what are the what are the behaviors that you can easily fall into that aren't helpful? Mm-hmm. Um, so if I get to that point, that that's what I hope to do. I do a little bit of it when I'm asked to speak at a class, you know, at USC or UCLA or wherever I have a presentation, but I want to take that presentation and explode it Mm. out, you know, into, if it's even doable. so, you know, I don't know how much of it Disney would approve. Um, You know, it's in a way it's, it's the alchemy, you know, it's exposing the alchemy, but I'm not sure that it's, that it's alchemy that's understood, you know, within that it's completely understood within company now and you know i fear that's a lot of that and and it always kind of boils down to try to think simply try to do it as simple as possible and remember that you know people's attention isn't going to be focused everywhere visually and also orally you can't over tell a story in a theme park you know as much of it that can be done implicitly um as possible is is really the way to go i mean you tell the story through through the gestalt of how everything is put together and if you find yourself writing a very wordy um, introduction to a show for example um, you're gonna lose the audience and spend more money you know there's an area where um you know, it's kind of like a bell curve, I guess, you know, you can spend too little and it looks cheap. You can spend the right amount and know where to cut corners and where to pour it on. And then you could also end up spending money to make the product less appealing. And those are the kind of warning signs or kinds of, you know, traffic signals, I guess, that uh, I want to, you know, be able to convey to future Imagineers and, or people going into the business in general. Cause there's a, a general, there's a general, um, I guess it's just like, you know, literature, right? There's, there's a tendency to overwrite. There's a tendency to get, you know, over flowery. There's a, you know, a, 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 and what you're taught is to be as pithy as possible and get the idea across. I mean, I, I still go back to the, um, to that little handbook that we were given in English class in, gosh, I think it was not even college. I think it was in high school, and I just forgot the name of it. But it's uh, it's a kind of a standard English, you know, do's and don'ts. How to write a memo, how to write a letter. Uh, gosh, why can't I remember it right now? I have a copy of it somewhere. Anyway, um, you know, how do you get the most out of? So, how do you optimize your project? Get the most out of it without spending too much. Or or what's the right amount to spend to get the best uh, bang for the buck.
2: And if somebody was, and this is all like, this is gold, this is great stuff. But if somebody was to come up to you, Tom, and say, I want to do what you've done. I want to be an Imagineer. What is, what would be the one simplest piece of practical advice you can give somebody, whether they're high school, college, or even later on in life, who wants to sort of get into Imagineering? What would be a piece of advice you think you could give somebody
0: it's the hardest thing to answer um kind of simply but certainly basic basic um a class and basic sketching you know quick sketching it doesn't have to be beautiful that's the thing i mean i i some of the imagine you know you can be a renderer like herb ryman but you're probably not going to get to design as many things if you become a really good illustrator, because they're going to rely on you to create the beautiful marketing art. Um, You'll be able to design more and and do more things. If you're just a really good quick sketch artist. Now, by the way, Herb Ryman was both, but um, you know, being able to, and, and Bill Martin was one of the Imagineers who I would say he was not, you know, you never see, very rarely do you see any of his art, but he was really fast and good and clear. And the design was beautiful. You know, the design was right. And, um, and they were kind of, you know, almost cartoonish. You know, he didn't spend a lot of time rendering shade and shadow. Um, so I would say that's one. And then read a lot of, you know, um, certainly film. I mean, I took film classes both in high school and in college. And that thinking really helped. Um in the back of my head, somewhere it came out, you know, on the job about about composing scenes and and creating focus and kind of a one, two, three priority. What's the number one thing? What's the secondary thing? What's the tertiary thing? And um so, so film, uh theater, a little bit of theater. And um and sketching, quick sketching, and then um, an understanding of how the machines work. So, an understanding of attractions, how you know the, the the all of the intimate relationships between THRC dispatch interval, vehicle speed, vehicle spacing, minimum turning radius, sight lines, <laughs> the reveal moment, the conceal moment. All of these things um, come from uh, very fine observation and repetitive observation going on the attractions. And then if you're a ride operator, you see it from a different perspective. And I would get bored. Um, This was even before I was a ride operator selling balloons in the middle of the day. No one bought balloons. And yet you're standing there. You were there for basically the, the beginning of the day and the end of the day. And then in the middle of the day, sometimes you'd just be standing there, and so you had to think of something. And so I would observe, like on the Matterhorn, you know, I would I would count how many um, bobsleds are on that track, you know, because they were all different colors, so you could tell. Here comes the orange and black one, so um, that would tell you what the cycle was, and then how many cars are in there, you know, how many how many vehicles between that so you know it'd be 12 or 13 and what's the interval and so you just start doing all that math simple math in your head and then it's like oh they have so many vehicles and it's it's this cycle time so the average speed is this and you know i don't know what the top speed or the slow slow speed is but you can derive an average from that so i would just you know do that because there was nothing else to do sometimes
2: (laughs) 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 <laughs> well and what's great is that even if somebody has this idea they can i mean there's so much valuable content and information that they could just start going down that path just by stuff that's available online but right i, I want to come full circle tom because you started off as a fan i have to believe you are still a fan what for you taking imagineer tom out of the equation? What attraction for you do you just personally love or enjoy the most to ride, to experience?
0: Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland, um, you know, because that was kind of the eye-opening moment the first time I went on it, which was the summer of 67. And then trying to figure it out in my head, you know, how it was laid out and how the scenes were kind of folded on top of each other and underneath one another. And then, you know, um, researching the evolution of it from its idea, from its conception and how it kind of came about and how it was all squished into that small space. Um, and it still is to me, it's still intriguing as I go through it. It's like, I, you know, where is the blue Bayou kitchen relative to where I am right now? I think just stuff in the middle of it. I call them vortexes. There's like, you know, there's one point in that attraction that within like 25 or 30 feet of that point that you're at, maybe, you know, I'm going to say it's like the bottom of the up ramp. You're only 25 feet away from the down ramp, from the saloon scene um, of the skeletons down below, of the Blue Bayou restaurant, of the Blue Bayou kitchen, um, of Lafitte's Landing, of all these different places. And you think of them, God, it's all... You know, and and you can't imagine how it all squeezes together, especially if you walk the Utilidor um, that that squeezes in between all of that. That's the first Utilidor, by the way. And um, that was built in in it was intended to be there was intended to be a Utilidor there in 62 when they dug the basement. And then when they ended up building the attraction on the other side of the berm, they kind of rejiggered that Utilidor but it's still, you know, so it opened that utilidor in New Orleans Square opened in 66. And the intention for it goes back to 62 to have a, a, a utilidor where um, trucks can come in and make their deliveries and employees can walk through. And there's a bunch of back of house um, facilities essentially underground and under the ride and over the ride. It's in, in between. It's sandwiched in between. It's like on a mezzanine between the, the two levels of the attraction. And for years I couldn't figure out, you know, cause there was a, there used to be an employee cafeteria in there and I would go in there just to try to figure in my head, where is the down ramp? This makes no sense that we should be in the middle of the down ramp right now sitting here. And eventually I, once I got a hold of all the plans and everything,
2: <laughs> <laughs> but now next time we all ride, we're going to be thinking the same thing. We're going to be looking around at not the show scenes, but trying to figure out what is exactly yeah. where.
0: Uh, well, like other nerds that are kind of in the same boat, pardon the pun, um, think that when they go through the jail, past the jail, and then there's this low area, kind of a low ceiling, suddenly, they all say, yeah, that's where the train track is. And it's like, no, the train track is 24, 26 feet above us right now. What you're seeing is the bottom of the utilidor. It's the bottom. So people are walking through there <laughs> in the middle of the scene. And there used to be a a tray conveyor because Walt was so fascinated, you know, with any kind of new technology. And um, this was going to, this was going to be the book that I was going to write, but, and I went down the other rabbit holes. He was so, you know, into the technology. So the utilidor was part of this, but so was this newfangled um, tray there. <laughs> That's not the official name, but I think it's the name that uh, Bill um, Cottrell gave it the the tray which was a a conveyance system for the dining trays for the cafe for the cafes above there were three Mm. restaurants that required um trays and dishes to be cleaned and so there was a little another ride but it was only for trays and dishes there was another ride in new orleans square until about 10 years ago it went through there it went um, you know, from the upper level, then down, you know, into the kitchen and someone in the kitchen would pick up the trays and then go back up to the blue Bayou. And then we'd go through the middle of the arsenal scene <laughs> at the end of the ride and through the utilidor and then back up to the, to the, uh, cafeterias. And that was like fascinating to me when I discovered that, that, I mean, I knew I saw that tray thing all the time. You could see it in the utilidor, in the middle of the utilidor up on the ceiling it's like I don't want to get too close to that tray thing because I don't know what might be well, on this.
2: That. I mean, even now to think about <laughs> it, mean, it's incredible, especially knowing that it was built in the '60s to be able yeah. to sort of, like you said, fold things in.
0: in yeah, it's and it was the second one. The first one was at the Plaza Inn, and it, you know, I don't know that one might still be there. I don't know, or maybe they would shut them off by now. But um, yeah, the other thing there were a whole bunch of things and he'd, he'd learn Walt would learn these things after he had taken a trip somewhere. And maybe these had to do with the world's fair. I don't know. You know, maybe he saw this at the world's fair. Um, and also the, um, radiant heating that would go under a dining outdoor dining area. So that was installed in two or three locations at Disneyland and, I understand those don't go anymore but um they did at one point maybe they you know in california how much do you need the radiant heat in january maybe so um but you know that was another thing he was very interested in and um everything you know he was so curious and he learned oh i was going to say there was also a um shopping center I don't think it's there anymore or it's been totally redone up in Palo Alto maybe or San Mateo and it it had a food court in it that had a central underground kitchen and that's probably where you saw the dish Mm veyers and um, some of these other you know innovations and so I know that they took a trip up there to look at this this setup of a centralized kitchen and um, and then different food uh, outlets for that.
2: Nothing wrong with taking a little bit of inspiration from wherever it uh, it may oh. come, and and that was incredibly impressive then as it as it I think it still sounds now. But what do you think right now is the most impressive thing Disney has recently done or is currently doing? Well, I I love
0: the Avatar Land. Um, I probably like the land more than the attractions. I'm not a simulator guy so much. I mean, they're okay. Um, I like real, you know, real ride throughs, but that land is so beautiful and immersive and so many things to look at. And same with Galaxy's Edge for that matter. And it's kind of in the same boat in, in some ways. And of course the Rise of the Resistance is a spectacular, impressive attraction, probably the most impressive attraction uh, that Disney has ever done. Um, but, you know, um, gosh, there's a lot. I went on Mickey's railway recently and loved that. And, uh, Cars Land is impressive. Um, I'm too close to that though. So (laughs) it's hard to, (laughs) uh, Oh, I know there's something, you know, I mean, it's like, I'm always, you know, just baffled, like how we top ourselves, Disney tops themselves, um continuously and uh I, I mean I love animal kingdom really I mean all of animal kingdom to me is kind of like the best um new park that's been done aside from a from a castle park. I really love it I just love it's kind of the same thing it's the it's the place making and the exploration that you know that you embark on in that park. so oh there's just a lot of things a lot of a lot of great, you know the Ratatouille attraction is great, and um, I'm really looking forward. I didn't get a chance to dine in the spaceship restaurant, but uh, looking forward to that. And um, I don't know. There's always something new. I'm. I have not been to Shanghai um, since it was constructed. I was. I was there on the site before construction began but haven't had a chance to get out there since it's open. So I understand pirates, of course, is amazing.
2: There's no tray conveyors, but it it will probably.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, Mystic Manor, you know, it was another one that's really, you know, hit it out of the ballpark. So, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I love, I love just uh, the fine tuning of it's a small world. Mm -hmm. You know, it used to be an almost an embarrassing attraction at one point in its lifespan, where, you know, I could understand how some executive might have said, okay, this is tired and now it's time for it to go because the, you know, it just had, it had yellowed, you know, I mean, it had like uh, o- oxidized, you know, the the sound wasn't that good, the, the lighting and everything. Now I'm talking going way back. This is like in the 80s, you know and um, maybe into the early 90s but with each improvement that they've done where they've improved the sound they've improved the lighting they've gone in and freshened up the sets added the the disney characters it is you know top you know it's top shelf and you get goosebumps when you go through it now and you don't think in your head i mean as a as a skeptical i guess teenager i was probably still a teenager or in you know 21 or 22 and i'd go through it and i'm like (laughs) and it wasn't the music you know it was just that it had um lost its sparkle sparkle yeah and now it is really sparkly you know and and the sound is so good and the lighting is so good and i enjoyed working on two of them subsequently for the the one in paris and then the one in hong kong so all right
2: you know i guess maybe final question for now because i just enjoy talking with you so much um what do you think tom is what does the future look like for the disney parks experience i, I mean you can take a macro, micro view, whatever, but sort of looking down, where do you think the next step in the evolution of the in-park experience is going to be?
0: I don't know. It's it's always been hard to predict, you know, what the next thing or what the next change or, um, you know, if you asked me 20 years ago, it would be a different outcome, Um, So it's very hard to predict, you know, and also just the the health of the industry goes up and down, just like everything, like the car industry or any other industry. You know, so there was that time in the 90s when we were never going to do another theme park again, and we were only going to do additions to existing parks, and we were going to do these regional entertainment things like Disney Quest, and that was it. I mean, that was where we were all geared to, and then that didn't happen. You know, the regional entertainment happened a little bit but not that big. And then we got back into theme parks again (laughs) and then they were kind of budget theme parks, but now they're, you know, that's not so much an issue anymore. And now we're in the realm of IP. I don't know in five or 10 years, if that's going to hold up to the degree that it's been um, integrated. I remember we wanted IP (laughs) when I started, there was no IP that we could use because, Oh, you know, Island at the top of the world is coming out and we're going to do an a Oh no, it didn't do well. Tron is coming out. So we'll do it. Oh no, that didn't do well. And so it was one after the other. And when is the studio going to finally make something that we can work with? Condor. We thought about Condor
2: man was the next big. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) um the apple dumpling right yeah and they were kind of cute movies but there was nothing to work with from an attraction standpoint so it's like you know we wanted ip so badly we looked at the rescuers briefly for the flume ride and went back to a film from the 40s (laughs) so you know finally when little mermaid happened that was kind of like okay you know and when can we get little mermaid in the park we planned it for paris we even put it on the map on that souvenir map along with Beauty and the beast. And those two never happened, but, uh, we were dying for IP and now you could argue, maybe it's a little too much. Um, I don't know. Time will tell. It'd I hope be, uh... we never, I hope we never stop doing original concepts, you know, I'm still using "we" the royal "we." I'm retired, yeah, yeah, yeah. part of it anyway. Well, I think but, we uh, say "we"
2: even expands. <laughs> like we could say "we." Yeah, even, right. You know, I think that's one of the things that Tokyo Disney Sea does so well. Is oh yeah, their original IP and unique concepts,
0: or just yes,
2: overarching themes. Um, yeah, which, which is why yeah. that park is so special.
0: There'll always be room for both. I hope IP never goes away. Yeah. I I just think it. You know, I I would love to see the percentage uh, skew a little bit back towards some original. Oh things so um and we'll see i it's hard to predict like i said you know it's it's a lot of it is what the audience wants and but then it's that's also difficult to gauge for you know really scientifically you know i, I think neuroscience will help in the future help gauge what um people really want or what are they seeking or what are they missing what What aren't they able to explain that they would like to see, you know, but they can't put it into words.
2: And I think it goes beyond even just the subject matter being IP versus non-IP. What does, you know, AR, AI, what do all these different new technologies that are coming out, how is that going to affect and and possibly alter the course of
0: the... Well, I think for fans, there'll be, I think... I mean, I haven't heard that there's any uh, initiative to do this. And it was something I brought up a couple of times. So it probably will be done in 10 or 15 years. (laughs) And that is little AR. um, I don't know if you would call it a periscope or uh, observation, um, some sort of observation, uh, not room, but station, observation station. That you can go into in in parks where people have, you know, a very strong interest in its past, where you can go in and virtually look at the same space and see how it has evolved. Going all the way back to like, if it's Disneyland, here's what the orange trees look like here. <laughs> and, I think we're
2: going to see that on our phones. I, I
0: honestly do. Yeah. I think we've oh, seen yeah.
2: little hints, hints of that already. Right. Um, right. I think Problem is
0: people don't know where to access the correct information. For that. So they're guessing and they don't know where to find the information that will tell them where um, the original orange trees were. You can there is a GPS location for every single walnut and orange tree Mm. on that property Um, because it's on a grid. You know, they didn't just, you know, uh, (laughs) randomly pop up they're all spaced you know 16 or i can't remember what it is but they're they're on a specific grid and that specific grid is locked into a uh survey you know that goes back to the 50s mm-hmm. and that can be rejiggered to go up you know into the sky and be but but where do you find that information
2: well unlike it's not, the-
0: it's not necessarily at wdi
2: right Right. But once they find it and once they realize that there would be a guest interest in it, you you obviate the sign pollution issue in an imagination post show area because now, oh, especially yeah. over the past 12 to 18 months, our mobile devices are such an integral part of our experience that it's yes. only going to continue to grow. <clears throat> Excuse me. And now, being able to give guests
0: additional layered experiences, if
2: you want it yes. so, if you want to do it. Right. The Play Disney app, you can do it if you want to do it. And that's the key. That you can.
0: Yeah. You don't want to force that next level on them. And that's that's a pitfall that I see sometimes where, where you know, a, a designer or a creator will be so enthusiastic about their idea that they just assume that everyone is going to want to do that. And you find that the behavior is different when you get into a park. It's difficult you know, I rely a lot when I'm traveling. I rely a lot, or I think I'm going to rely a lot on a lot of the pre, uh, the preparation, the digital preparation, the map finding, the wayfinding, all of that. And I end up, you know, not using it so much because I'm in the moment and, um, it, you know, I, I don't need it or it, it's more interesting whatever is happening at this moment than to have to stop the car, <laughs> pull off to the side of the road. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that's the key. It's, if you, you know, it's, it's for repeat visitors. It's more for repeat visitors who want to take it progressively into deeper levels.
2: Right. Cause the Disney fan, <clears throat> excuse me, encompasses such a wide spectrum there's parks people, there's pin people, there's history people, yeah. there's technology people, there's movie people and it's a matter of of creating guest satisfiers for each right. of those sort of different buckets in that same space.
0: right. Yeah, you know the it's the the passion project that I've had for over 10 years now is the archaeology of Disneyland. and it still has not been done. A lot of really great books have been written uh, recently about Disneyland but it still hasn't gotten into the archaeology of it and when i say that i don't mean it in a didactic boring you know sure. geography class kind of a way but in a national geographic way that is you know that where it, it's being told visually in ways that are instantly comprehensible uh and where you can see layers just like you know the cell overlays that they have in the nat- i don't know if they still do that but they did when I was growing up, and I love those. You know, I looked forward to a national geographic issue. So you could see progressively how a, a city evolved or devolved, uh, or how you know Vesuvius erupted exactly and 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 its eruption pattern and what um, was destroyed in its wake, <laughs> and then what survives today. Because you always want to link it back to what you know or what you can see today. And so that hasn't been done. I still intend to do a book about it, like a giant National Geographic, but taking it to the next level with AR would be the bomb, you know, that is, you know, and someone's going to do it. I hope I can do it because I'm going to have the correct information and I'm not going to be guessing blindly. As I tell you, the information needed to, um, to do it accurately is buried. You have to know where to find it. Yeah,
2: It's an overwhelming undertaking, but one I think that's necessary and I know that I am not alone is one that would be highly anticipated by Disney fans. And to your point, yeah. it's not about doing it, it's about doing it right.
0: Uh, yeah, it the right exactly. Way. It's the curation of it. Yeah,
2: yeah. well, uh, you are the person to do it, clearly, because you have the knowledge, you have the passion, and from what I understand, you have a garage full of you know, 16
0: millimeter slides piling up yeah. in your garage. And now I have the, and now I've developed the OCD required <laughs> to focus.
2: We'll call it the OCD. We'll call it passion. We'll call it passion.
0: I think it is like a muscle in your brain because yeah. when I would go to the archives in Burbank, the Disney archives have been so nice to me and um, letting me do some of my research there. It's like, I have a limited amount of time in there and so i have like developed this muscle not to get distracted by anything else because i could certainly get distracted and people come in it's funny you know it's open the lobby there is open to folks Mm -hmm. at the studio to come in and browse what's in the cases there and someone i know sometimes comes in you know or um and i'll overhear conversations about Various things I've worked on and I just keep my mouth shut and I am trying to get as much information into my head as I pour through pages and I'm tapping away on my laptop and I'm just laser focused and I've never, I was never able to do that in school or anything. Uh, But I think because of the, you know, it's such a privilege to go into the archives and to be there um, that I just like, okay, I'm going to get as much out of this as I can so now I can do this at home where I just, you know, yesterday was the first day I got back onto the book and I just went through and chopped it from, um, 170 or 180 pages down to what they want, which is 150 making draconian decisions, but also <laughs> creatively jiggering things around, by the way, it doesn't mean it's not going to be in the book. It just means that that will go into the second volume. Um, so, uh, I did that yesterday and got it. Here's now I've got the template. Now I'm, you know, now I can finish writing it. And it turns me into a very boring person. No, not at all. (laughs) Very boring. It's uh, it's very, my friends call me, come, let's do this. Let's do that. (laughs) No, I gotta do my (laughs) book. Nah, the result (laughs) is going to
2: be worth the investment of the time and the sweat equity that you put into it. And I know, like I said, one that will be, um, we will all be looking forward to seeing um, when it comes out. And and I would certainly love again to, to do this again. Maybe we'll do, maybe we'll do a live show one night where people can actually come on and, and ask you some questions yeah. that they might have to. Sure. Um, because I know you really are just scratching the surface of, yeah. of some of the amazing work you've done.
0: Great. I would love to.
2: Tom K Morris. Thank you so much. I will link to your Twitter where you are a prolific tweeter with Images and content that we have never seen before And uh, I,
0: I to- wish <laughs> uh, You know I, I dry up Sometimes because I've got well, Let me tell you I had stuff I could show But I'm not allowed to show I mean I have an agreement <laughs> not to show um, uh, Unpublished material From Disney It's something I've seen Before in a book uh, You know or it, it has been published Somehow even if you know back in the 60s or 70s and then i'm free to use that but anything that has never never been seen um and it's not floating around on the internet already so that limits me to what i can what i can do so i, I feel like i've been kind of dry lately but well, i have a fun thing coming so. yeah, you
2: know when he tweets it there's going to be good stuff it might not be yeah. five times a day but um yeah. it's, it's quality not quantity so tom i cannot thank you enough not just for your time the last few times that we've spoken but really, the, the incredible work and the gifts that you've given so many guests, literally for, for generations, uh, with your contributions to the parks. Uh, I, I sincerely, sincerely.
0: Oh, that's awfully nice. Thank you.
2: for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World's history and some of the details you might remember from your Walt Disney World experience. If you think you know the answer, you can enter via our online form for a chance to win a Disney prize package. And this week's contest is once again brought to you by you. Because as a part of the WW Radio Nation, you literally help bring every episode of WW Radio to life Every live broadcast from the parks, the contests and giveaways, they're all thanks to you and by, for, and because of you. And you can find out how you can help the show for as little as a dollar a month and get cool exclusive rewards every month like scavenger hunts, trivia quests. We do group video calls, have access to our private Facebook group. You get shirts, stickers, monthly care packages from the parks and more. And don't forget that a portion of your contribution, which of course is completely optional, goes to our Dream Team project that benefits the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. I want to thank some of the new and longtime members of the WW Radio Nation, including Kelly Woodard, Patrick King, and his family, Philip Cresta, Suzanne Gibson, and Michaela Kraft. I sincerely thank you for your love, support, friendship, and help, and I love being able to give back to you each and every month as well. To find out more and become a member of the nation, visit www.radio.com support. Now, before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week, I asked you to tell me what attraction was once located in two different Walt Disney World parks. So after its run in one location, it was literally picked up and moved to a second in Walt Disney World. Thanks to the hundreds of you who entered, got this one correct, and knew that it was, of course, the oh-so-slightly-very-odd Magic Journeys. Now, Magic Journeys was an opening day attraction at the Journey to Imagination Pavilion, not on Epcot's opening day, but on the Imagination Pavilion's opening day on October 1st, 1982. In 1984, it actually moved over to Disneyland, first where the space stage was, and then at the Magic Eye Theater in Tomorrowland. Then, in 1986, it was removed from Disneyland in order to make way for Captain EO, And in December of 1987, Magic Journeys actually came back to Walt Disney World, but not in Epcot, but in Fantasyland, in the Fantasyland Theater. There, it was actually given a new pre-show, which was an old pre-show, because it was the 1953 3D short Working for Peanuts. Magic Journeys played in Fantasyland for about six years until it closed in December 1993 to make way for Legend of the Lion King. So anyway, I took all the correct entries, Randomly selected one, and once again this week you are playing for the WWE pin and keychain and a mystery bonus prize, and last week's winner, randomly selected, is Ellen Simmons. So Ellen, congratulations, I will get your prize packet out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. This week's trivia challenge is actually to see if you remember and can identify where in Walt Disney World you've heard this quote. Uh, All right, everyone, stay on your number and move your arms a bit. Okay, start scan. Just tell me where in Walt Disney World you can or could hear that. You have until Sunday, February 6th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern to go to www.radio.com. Click on this week's podcast, use the form there. Again, you're going to play for the pin, the keychain, and a bonus mystery surprise prize. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. Thanks again to Tom K. Morris. You can obviously check out part one of his interview last week and go back to show 661 for my first conversation with him and his background at Walt Disney Imagineering. You can talk about this week's show and ask questions and talk about anything in the Disney, Marvel, Star Wars universe by being part of the community and conversation over in the WW Radio Clubhouse. That is our group over in Facebook at wwradio.com slash clubhouse. You can also connect with me elsewhere on social. I'm at Lou Mangiello on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and please also make sure you like the WW Radio page over on Facebook at facebook.com slash WW Radio and turn on notifications both in the clubhouse and on the page so you don't miss a thing including our WW Radio live show every Wednesday at 7.30pm Eastern together we'll walk, talk, ride from the Disney parks or I'll be home sharing my top 5 live Disney Plus pick of the week we'll talk about what's going on in the world of Disney news, your questions your calls contests, and much more. Again, that's every Wednesday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern at www.radiolive.com. And if you miss any of the shows, you can find the replay by going to the video section over on the WWW page or in the clubhouse. And of course, as much as I love connecting with you online, nothing beats a somewhat distant and safe handshake and hug. So please go and check out our events page at www.radio.com events, including our Meet of the month, cheering and running team get-togethers during marathon weekends, group cruises, which you can come be a part of, including our inaugural cruise on the Disney Wish in June, our Very Merry Time cruise on the Wish in December, and our Disney Fantasy 8-Night cruise in April of next year. I'm also planning other events, meetups, and gatherings throughout the year, including at D23 Expo, on-the-road events, and much more. And I am so incredibly and sincerely grateful For so much that you have given me, not just your time, but your friendship and love and support, and I'd love to be able to give back to you and help you any way I can by working with you one-on-one or a small group or at some of my events to help you turn what you love into what you do by helping you build your brand, your business, your blog, whatever it might be, or by coming to speak your corporate event or your school about a wide selection of topics, including using Disney as a great examples of customer service, lessons we can learn from Walt Disney, practical and inspirational ways to follow your dreams and passion and much more. Again, to find out more and reach out to me, you can visit loomangelo.com. Thanks, as always, to my travel partner, the entire team over at MouseFanTravel.com. Whether you're going to any Disney destination or vacation destination on the planet, they'll help you out. With incredible service, the best possible prices, all available discounts, and it all comes at no cost to you. You can find out more and get a free, no obligation quote by visiting mousefantravel.com. And as always, my friend, and you are my friend. All I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. And what I mean is that, literally, if you know somebody that might be interested, tell a friend, and ask them to listen and subscribe, share a link to this or your favorite episode on your favorite social network, and if you can. Take just a couple of seconds to rate and review the show. You can now leave a very quick rating over in Spotify Podcasts, or if you listen via Apple Podcasts, or just have Apple Podcasts on your phone, you can rate and leave a brief review there as well. I'd like to thank some recent reviewers, like Michelle Townsend, who said, W.W. Radio is a must for Disney's fans. I've listened to lots of podcasts for the last eight years. W.W. Radio is one of my favorites. Lou Manchello is awesome. Thank you. Lou delivers an informative, detailed, and very interesting podcast that's fun to listen to. Lou and his guests are very entertaining, and I look forward to each episode of WW Radio every week. And Alessandra Emilio from Brazil says it's the best of the best of the best. Lou's passion comes through in every episode. Well done. Every Disney fan should download the podcast. Alessandra and Michelle, thank you very much. And again, just search for WW Radio in Apple Podcasts and or Spotify. And finally, most importantly, thank you, thank you, thank you. I love and appreciate you so very much and the time that you give and share with me i hope that the show continues to not only enhance your enjoyment and appreciation of the disney parks but i hope it makes your day happier and your week better and maybe even puts a smile on your face and inspires you a little bit more to choose the good and find the good in in everything that we see everyone that we meet Uh, i think that positivity is is contagious and if you spread positivity that positivity will spread and we can all use a little bit more of that every single day in our lives. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope that this truly is your best week ever. So until next time, see ya.
1: Hi, my name is Darren Henry. I'm calling about your request for what I think is the top attraction worldwide. Of course, I've not been everywhere, but I'll tell you, I live close enough to Disneyland to go there enough and be able to say that Radiator Springs Racers is the top ride worldwide because it is park thrill ride, park dark ride. It has excitement. It has soothing mellow moments when you're going around and seeing the waterfall and all that. It has every bit that you need to make a ride perfect. So that's why I'm saying Radio Springs Racers, it's the whole package. Thanks. Hi Lou and Becky. This is Chris Garashi from Vancouver, Washington. Becky, you know me on Facebook as Chrissy Garashi. So I just wanted to say, Becky, you know, you're my hero. Uh, fight the good fight. Uh, in regards to my favorite attraction, I've never been to Disneyland Paris, but I wanted to go for one Reason and one reason alone, and that is Space Mountain. I think that uh, Space Mountain is is an awesome coaster, one of my favorites. And the thought of combining that awesome uh, attraction with a uh, rock and roller coaster launch to me sounds like an amazing trip through space. When they uh, close the Disneyland Space Mountain. For refurbishment, we just hoped and hoped and hoped that it was going to have a launch or maybe a loop or, or something. Um, and side note, I feel like uh, Walt Disney World they need to add the soundtrack to the Space Mountain in Disney World. The, the soundtrack in Disneyland it just adds so much to the attraction. It makes it so much better. It gets every you know sight, sound, uh, and, and immersive uh, experience. So that is my take. Space Mountain, Disneyland Paris. Thanks for all you guys do. Choose the good. Have a great day. Hello, Lou Mangello. It's Darlene Nagy, formerly of West Seneca, New York, and currently living in Central Florida. I just wanted to call and say that we have five days until our Disney WDW Radio, Marvel Day, and Sea Cruise. So excited. Can't wait to see everybody again and be in the magic of the magic. (laughs) It's going to be exciting. And also you have the wish cruise in June at 140 days. So that's really exciting. And then I know in December there is another wish cruise for the Christmas time. And so that's only months away as well. You've got so much on your plate, and I can't wait to hear about it all. Have a magical day. Stay safe. Love and hugs, everyone. Can't wait to see you on the cruise. sure to stay seated with your seat belt buckled. It's the law in my town.